The following program is a podcast1.com production. Brady Sinellis, and you're listening to the Brady Sinellis podcast. And I'm here at the Podcast One Studios in Beverly Hills with my guest, the producer Jason Blum of the Paranormal Activity, Sinister, The Purge, and Insidious franchises, as well as last year's Oscar winning Whiplash. The dreaded development process, the pragmatism of the producer in the face of this, the optimism of the producer, the resiliency of the producer, these are attributes that everyone to some degree in the business of making movies has to enforce throughout their careers on certain projects. It takes years, sometimes decades, seeing a project to fruition. And often the projects never see the light of day. But that length of time doesn't really mean anything to actors or writers or directors who, if a project has stalled, moves on to other projects. However, the producer usually doesn't move on and is the one member of the team who lives with the unproduced project for many years, again, even decades, trying to locate the money to make the movie while everyone is off doing their own thing. The tenacity and optimism that one has to grasp and hold on to in the name of making movies is just a given. Negativity, pessimism, and inability to find meaning in the absurdity of Hollywood is something everyone must shrug off. There are few of any rules in the way Hollywood conducts business, and navigating throughout an endless maze is something most people have to settle for. It has been this way for years, though now in the new fractured DIY culture, the maze is different now, smaller, because if we wanted to, we could lift up our phones and make a movie before lunch and post it online for thousands of people to see. Jason Blum, as a producer, has been a victim of the development process at Warner Brothers and Paramount, as well as having to answer to the Weinsteins when he was working for them at Miramax in the 90s. And now he has created a business model where micro-budget, big-concept, director-driven horror films have made him arguably the most successful producer in Hollywood. Someone who survived the creative death of studio movie making by implementing an independent DIY attitude in a studio system that makes him and the studios a lot of money while having near-total freedom in the kinds of movies he is producing. This is a description of Blum's New Deal from The Hollywood Reporter. 
Jason Blum signed a 10-year deal at NBC Universal, and under this deal, Blum can put any movie that costs $4 million or less into production, as long as its genre is horror, thriller, or sci-fi. The studio sees the script and is advised who the director is and can sign off on casting, but has nothing to do with Blum's financial arrangements with talent, and Universal stays out of the process until the film is ready to be previewed. Rather than taking producing fees on his films, Blum's deal at Universal gives him 12.5% of first dollar gross, which is a larger amount than most, if any, producers get. When the movies are successful, some of Blum's profits goes into a pool to be split with actors and a few key crew members. When the films hit big, the top-billed actors can do very well. On Insidious Chapter 2, the stars Patrick Wilson and Rose Byrne each made $7 million apiece, and Ethan Hawke took nothing but a percentage for the violent thriller The Purge and ended up pocketing $2 million from the gross receipts. The model for Blumhouse, Jason's production company, is that a movie costs $4 million, and if everything goes wrong at that price, one can always get $4 million out of a horror movie, at the least $2 million domestic, $2 million international. And because of this low cost, there is an artistic freedom for the filmmakers. Jason Blum has to date produced in some capacity over 78 movies, according to IMDb, and he's only 46, with 22 of those films grossing a combined total of one point. $8 billion. Legendary producer Roger Corman has said that Blum has been so successful, he could probably give me advice. These are the rules for Blum. Everybody above the line works for free or for scale. Never work with a first-time director. Don't go after the hot director. Cut down on time spent negotiating. Don't release every movie wide. Story and character matter even in a horror movie. Don't think about a sequel until the original is shot and shoot everything in Los Angeles. This business model is, in fact, keeping in tune with one of the conversations we have been having constantly on this podcast, the importance of the DIY sensibility in the new movie culture. And despite the fact that Blumhouse reaches a conventional and broad audience, the movies made are still basically independent movies, and they just happen to be released by a big studio. That is the objective. Because the big studios can effectively advertise, market, and release a movie, this is nearly impossible to do anywhere but at a studio. Few, if any, outside the studio system have the financial resources to release a film theatrically. So the objective of this podcast is to understand understand, first of all, how Jason Blum got to this point in his career and to help us understand what is the role of the producer now in contemporary Hollywood. So first of all, just to get this out of the way, I want to ask you, Jason, what you think a producer should do. I made shorts with very small crews and I had two producers I worked with on them, but it was kind of like a bunch of friends getting together. We shot when we had a location. We shot when we had equipment. We shot when we had actors available and it was kind of like guerrilla filmmaking. It wasn't really until early this spring that I made a series of shorts. I did some advertisements for Persol for their uh, new sunglasses line. The ideas behind the ads weren't mine exactly, but Persol wanted my, um, whatever, my temperament, my sensibility for the ads. I had to shoot about 10 minutes of usable film in all, and one story that could be told in 10 minutes, and also could be cut into five or six separate ads for their website and for French TV. And I took the job because there was a lot of money to spend, and there was a crew of about 50, including the actors, and I wanted to see if I could do it. And it went smoothly. We came in on time and on budget, and it took about four days to shoot here in LA. And I liked the experience, and the ads turned out well, but in retrospect, I could not have done it without having a very strong and supportive producer. He was an invaluable asset to the experience. Now, conversely, I have also seen projects, have been involved in more than a couple of projects myself, which were absolutely ruined by producer interference. And that is probably more likely the experience everyone has had out here at one time or another. But just for the layman listening to this podcast, for you, what does a good producer do? And how do you think the role of the producer has changed over the past couple of decades in Hollywood? 
So what does a producer do? I think um, – What does a good producer do compared to like what a bad producer does? I think to me the first thing that comes to mind when you say bad producer is someone who's producing but they really want to write or direct. And I think there's a lot of producers all over the You're world absolutely correct. Who, yes. who, who are frustrated writer-directors. Um, I can say definitively I will never – I have never – actually, I did. I wrote one script uh, about about – uh, 15 years ago, which was which is unreadable, not to say, not to mention unshootable. I, I will never write a script again, and um, and I will never direct. I will never direct a movie. And I think that uh, I think that the first thing that comes to mind when you say what what makes a bad producer is is, is a producer who's a frustrated writer director and someone who feels that they're not doing their job unless they're constantly tinkering with the creative. And um, and I think one of the things that we're we're careful with, and I and I and I kind of have to say this in a more thoughtful way because I, I, a couple times I've said it, and I think people take the wrong information away from it. It's not that we're not we're ex- extremely creatively involved in every movie and television show that we do, but the way that we get involved, and I think what a good producer does is puts options in front of the direct in front of the writer director in front of the creator of things that they can do. Again, always watching the budget. We're, we're very conscious about budgets, as you said. It's very important to me that we make the movies for the amount that we say that we're going to make the movies for. That can be frustrating to a director, but I think what a good producer does is say, look, I know this is what you, the, the, the point that you want to make at this moment in the movie or the TV show, but here are four other ways to make that point that you're not going to go over budget with. And, and the creative suggestions that we make are not only budget-related. We'll, when we get a script, we give a ton of notes on the script but the notes are given in such a way that most of the directors who we work with have final cut so they have total creative control so that there's not you said one of the things you said is there's not a lot of negotiating and i think that's true on both counts i think there's not a lot of negotiating on business points and there's not a lot of negotiating on creative points and as soon as you let a director as soon as you give director creative control and as soon as they're really believe they don't believe that they have it till we're pretty far into the process but when they really believe that they have it the dialogue about the about the story and about notes is a much more constructive dialogue because the director isn't going home saying how am I going to get what I want the director knows they're going to get what they want so that the, you engage about notes in a very very different way I agree completely with the bad producer definition because in both cases where uh, a film was made from a script of mine, both cases the producer was the one who was obviously a frustrated creative and then kind of doomed the movie by editing, changing the script, and that was that. That is the first sign I think of a bad producer. But you know, so you produced, for example, Whiplash, the movie that was nominated for five Oscars, including Best Picture this year, and which won three, including Best Supporting Actor for J.K. Simmons. But again, for example, what what was your job as producer on that? And again, this is for the layman, more or less. Just kind of simplifying what it is you did on that film, for example. Um, on that film, we essentially built the runway for Damien Chazelle, who was the writer director, to fly the plane or to take the to, to to take off on the plane. So, a lot of the crew that we used was our crew. We shoot all of our movies in LA, so we do we have we do all union movies, and we have a really high end union crew who's willing to work for a, a much lower rates than they ordinarily would because they know that we we aren't insane we don't shoot night we try to avoid nights and things like that so so we we really did for Damien what I'm suggesting is that we 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 gave him options both both story options and also 
hiring options. It's very, as a first-time director, essentially, he was almost a first-time director. It's hard to get experienced people to take a bet on you. And if you have an experienced production company behind you who who's kind of put their stamp on you of approval, it's much easier to get the kind of crew and the kind of actors that he got. Um, so I think we we did that. We're, we're re- we were very involved in how the movie was... Um, taken out to market to raise money for the budget, so we 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 got the financing for the movie, and then we're very involved once the movie's finished on laying the movie off on distribution. So we helped. We were really really involved in how the movie was sold, and and we were involved as a um, and you know I think a good producer is a cheerleader, handholder, pep talker through the process. But again, the the heart and soul of Whiplash. Is is uh, is Damien's? You know, is it belonged to the director, and I think that's that's kind of the difference. We're, we make we make independent movies that are oftentimes released by studios. So we've got one foot in the independent world and one foot in the studio world. And um, and independent movies are typically much more auteur director driven than studio movies, which were much more um, made, generally more made by committee because there's more money at stake. So uh, so um, so Damien's movie was no exception to that. But Whiplash costs uh, about $3.3 million to make. It takes in 10 times that theatrically, and it plays in theaters for over 24 weeks. And it also had an extensive Oscar campaign. I'm curious, how expensive is an Oscar campaign, and how does that cut into the profits? Because I remember hearing stories about the year No Country for Old Men and There Will Be Blood were duking it out for Best Picture, and that each camp had spent such an enormous amount of money on their Oscar campaigns that it seriously cut into profitability. Does it make sense financially? to do such an extensive Oscar campaign? And, and does it cut into profits? So the first thing is, um, I did not agree to do Whiplash because I thought we would make money. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, we're in a luck, really lucky, enviable position that we do really well on a, on a very specific kind of movie, and it allows us to do Whiplash or Normal Heart or The Jinx, where money is not... Uh, we're doing it because I think they're great stories to get out there in the world. Um the second answer to your the second thing to address is we're the producer, not the distribution company. So the distribution company is the one in charge of mm-hmm. if there's going to be an Oscar campaign and how much the Oscar campaign is going to cost. So those are decisions that we make. The third um, answer to your, to your or the answer to your third question is Oscar campaigns are really expensive. They're five, ten, fifteen million bucks. They absolutely cut into the profits of the filmmakers, not the producer. So our, so so the people who will make so Whiplash cost three point two. It did thirteen million domestic. It did thirty four million internationally, which is uh, first of all highly highly unusual. And the people who will um, financially do very well with the movie are the uh, are the distributors Sony uh, Sony also international had it and um, the person who uh, should do better than he'll do he'll do well but the person the person who took the biggest risk on whiplash was Mike was was uh, was bold films was uh, was Michelle Litvak you know that was the person who took the biggest risk on the movie that he read the script he gave us a check for 3.2 I think million dollars mm-hmm. not three and there was no sales against the movie it was a pure gamble and he's actually the one who, if the if the if the if the uh, econo- economics of the movie business were fair, he's the one who should have done best. Um, he will have done okay, but really, the people who will do best uh, is Sony. He'll do the second best, and then 
the people who are in the, the Damien and I'll do do uh, do the worst. That's not unusual. That's to be expected when you're making a movie that's 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 not that the commercial aspirations are like the third on the list. Then you know the outcome of how the money got sorted out on Whiplash was not surprising to me in any way. That's those are Hollywood economics. Mm-hmm. Your father is Irving Blum, one of the most prominent art dealers who during the 60s championed Warhol and Frank Stella and Ed Roche and Ed Moses and Ellsworth Kelly and Donald Judd and many other artists. And um, your mother is an art historian who specializes in the northern renaissance. Yeah, exactly. Um, There was no other art dealer more influential in bridging the work of East and West Coast pop artists than your dad. But your father also, early on in his career, wrote... Russ Mayer's first movie, The Immoral Mr. Tease, though he doesn't receive credit on it. This is true. And it kind of, in a way, prefigures what you ended up doing. I mean, it's made for 20 grand, goes on in $1959 to make over a million bucks, which was a lot then. And even though your father didn't go into the movie business, there is a nice prologue there to where kind of the son ended up. Did you know this at a certain point when you were growing up that your father had written this movie? The story of that movie is kind of great. So, so Russ Meyer and my dad, this is how I heard it, we're, we're, uh, we're pals. And um, Russ Meyer came to him and said, you know, they wrote the movie together. My dad narrated the movie. And he said to him, I'll give you $1,000 or 10% of the profits of the movie. And my dad, I think, took a look at the movie and was like, I'll take the 1000 bucks." <laughs> And uh, he, he made the wrong choice, which was kind of funny. But I think that the the more um, interesting parallel, I think, between what my what I learned from my father, what my father did, and 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 what I what I do currently is, my father, um, and I heard this from the time I could speak, um, you know, from the time I was two years old. Uh, built his business on sticking his neck out for things that were um, made fun of in the marketplace mm-hmm. or or undervalued. Um, you know, when my dad showed the soup cans at the, the – his gallery in L.A. was called the Ferris Gallery, and Ferris is my middle name. I was named after the gallery in mine. When my dad showed the soup cans there, everyone kind of treated them as a joke. And it's a famous old story, but he, you know, there were 32 available, and after a month, he had sold six for 100 bucks each, and people kind of hung him over their stove and the grease splattered on him, and then he, he got them back. It's another story I won't go into now, but, but I think the, the parallel, at least that I draw, is that I learned that it's very important if you believe in something, even if no one else does, to hold on to it. And I think that's what, that's what paranormal activity was. That was, that was, that was its, own, uh, its own soup can, right? And no one believed in the movie, and it was going straight to video. And it took three years for, for someone to finally think that that movie would, would be profitable. And I feel like that, to me, happens if there's one theme in my day – and in what I do, it's it's picking things that no one believes in and sticking with them. Whiplash was like that. Um, we have this book now. I've been trying to raise money for Stone. Everyone says Stoner's not a movie, or and that's that a great only, book by John Williams. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that only makes me want to make it a movie, uh, make it a movie more. And and that's also not that's not that's also true. That's the the exact same of a paranormal. Obviously, is a horror movie, but you know, Sinister was every almost every single movie, the horror movies that we've done too. When when people read the script, that's why I like to do it on my own because when people read the scripts, they're like. The, they're they're just they just don't think they're going to work. The Purge was around for for five four or five years before that movie got made, and uh, you know it's ironic to me when I'm talking to financiers now. Everyone says, um, you know, we we really want to do the Purge. We want to do the Purge, and I just 
smile to myself because if I, I had given them that those people the script of the purge before the purge came out, there's no way they would have done it. No right. one wanted to make a movie about uh, a, an America where crime was legal 12 hours a year. If you think about that concept and can get the movies out of your mind, there's so many ways that that can go wrong. Mm-hmm. And the director happened to just get that one right. But anyway, that's that. I think is the parallel between what my uh, what my what I learned from my father and what I what I what I do in my uh, in my in my job. You were born in 1969, and you were raised in Manhattan. Where in Manhattan? I was uh, born in Los Angeles, uh, and we moved to uh, to New York when I was uh, four or five years old. I was I w- lived with my mother during the weekend, Dobbs Ferry in Westchester, and my dad lived on Seventy uh, Fourth Street on East Seventy Fourth Street in uh, in Manhattan. And I spent the weekends with him and the weekdays with my mom. And where did you go to school? I went to public school until uh, eighth from K through eight. I went to public school uh, in Dobbs Ferry, and then I went to boarding school in uh, Watertown, Connecticut, from ninth grade to twelfth grade, and then I went to so you were an only child, but looking back, I guess it didn't really matter in terms of the way you were raised and the way you were going about things. I mean, boarding school, going back between two parents. I mean, did you notice that you were an only child? And had that, has that affected anything in your life, looking back on that? I think being an only child affected everything in my life. I was very aware of being an only child when I was uh, when I was growing up, um, and uh, I spent an enormous amount of time in my head, and uh, I think that's affected. That's affected. It, it continues to affect everything that I do in a negative and a positive way. I remember a year ago reading Christopher Isherwood's last volume of diaries, and I came across an entry where he was talking about hanging out with either your mom or your dad, and that there was the most adorable three- or four-year-old kid running around, and the kid's name was Jason. And I was reading this thinking, is that really Jason Blum? And I think I remember texting you, and you said, yeah, that was me. And that, that entry in the Isherwood diary is cherished quite fondly by your mother. But was the Blum households, uh, those kind of households, a lot of celebrities, a lot of famous people walking in and out of the frame, a lot of well-known artists? Did you sense that as a um, kid? I had, I had a double life when I was a kid, I, with the, the life that I just described, one with my mother and one with my father. The one with my mother was nothing like that. My mother was an art history professor, and our life was... She was not social, and it was a very normal suburban life. Um, I played on the street, and there was not no, there was not very little other. The, the world was very small. With my father, which was on weekends and over holidays, over the Christmas, and Easter, and, and summer vacation, it was very social. It was very, very different. I don't remember um, artists when in the seventies and eighties weren't celebrities right. like they are today. So we were with famous artists. We were with. Roy Lichtenstein and Ellsworth Kelly and all these people who are ce- ce- who are or were celebrities, but they weren't celebrities then. There were not. There was not. There was a little bit of. Uh, there was a little bit of celebrity. There was a little. You know, Dennis Hopper was a friend of my dad's, but it was and Steve Martin. But I didn't. Wasn't exposed to that very much. What I was really exposed to were artists and people who made a living making art, which I think had a big. An unconscious impact on on what I what I did later on. What were you interested in as an adolescent? Were you a good student? I was not a particularly. I was an I was an okay. Student. I was like a BB plus student. Um, I think I have. I had a. I've, I still. I have dyslex. I have a little dyslexia, and I think when I had it when I was young, they didn't know what dyslexia was. So I always had trouble with. I was very good at math and terrible at reading comprehension. Um, so I was. I like. I was an average, a little above average student. And um, what was I interested in? I was interested in. Um, I loved doing stuff. I've always loved doing stuff. I loved. I wasn't particularly good at sports, but I liked playing sports. I liked. I was. Very very, I think, engaged. And in eighth grade, 
when they had the um, you know most popular, most this, most that, best dressed, I won. Uh, which I still have my my yearbook from them. I won most active, uh, <laughs> which which makes me laugh. Um, I was popular until um, eighth grade, and then I was I was I was extremely unpopular in high school. I was the biggest loser in my class when I was in ninth grade, and in tenth grade I became one of seven or eight losers. So my status <laughs> went up a little bit. When I was a junior, I, I left high school because I was so unhappy there, and I. I went to live in France, which was a great year in, in, in my childhood. When I came back from France, I was moved out of the loser into the weird category. But I think that had a big effect on, uh, on, on, on me, my, that experience. You've also said at some points that your favorite filmmaker is Alfred Hitchcock and that your favorite horror movie might just be Rebecca. What is it about Hitchcock that you responded to so much as someone who was not necessarily an intense cinephile, admittedly? What was it about Hitchcock that suddenly spoke to you and I guess maybe woke you up in a way? Well, I took a class on Hitchcock. Well, I always liked – and you're, you're, you're definitely right. I'm not a cinephile and I don't have the language of the history of cinema like a lot of um, people in Hollywood do, like you do. But I did always like like Halloween was my favorite holiday when I was a kid, and my mother and I spent a long time every we started in my con, my costumes in August for 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 Halloween, <laughs> and I guess the first time I for whatever I saw Friday the Thirteenth when I was really young and I was it was too young and I, it was really a bad it was a terrible experience and it affected me really badly. But I guess Hitchcock was the first time um, I realized there was a bridge between like scary and Halloween and movies. You know, I didn't grow up like Eli or Quentin or you like loving um, Amityville Horror and loving all these movies. Like I didn't, I didn't dislike them, but it wasn't, I wasn't drawn to them. But then Hitchcock was like, wait, there's a way to do these movies that's a little bit different from the ones that you've seen. And, um, and I just, I really found that, you know, it was very eye-opening for me. And I think what happened is Paranormal did that to me 10 years later. Like I had, I had, I saw every Hitchcock movie. We took a seminar and it was just Hitchcock. So we'd see two movies a week and write about them. And I kind of obviously tucked that away into my subconscious and it came out again 10 years later when I, when, uh, when Paranormal, 15 years later when Paranormal Activity happened. But, um, but I feel like the, the, the love of scary stuff has been trying to come out in different ways and finally kind of with the speak with the creation of Blumhouse I really I always say that it took me um it took me 15 years of of doing different things in the movie business to find the perfect fit and now I feel very lucky to say and again whether it continues to work or not work or whatever I found what's right for me in this business I'm not searching for something else and for the first 15 years that I was working in the business it never felt like it was the right fit I shot a conversation for a Hitchcock documentary. I did this about a couple months ago. It was primarily about Psycho and how there is a cinema before the shower sequence 
And then there is a cinema after the shower sequence in terms of how the shower sequence affected culture and American filmmaking in general. And the filmmaker and I are, are on camera. and We're talking about how Hitchcock can be very deceptive, which is what is so fascinating and great about him, how contradictory he can even be. And I had a conversation about Vertigo with the filmmaker James Gray on this podcast. And we talked about how the meaning of Vertigo, which is now considered the greatest film ever made, changes with each viewing that you don't see Vertigo on a first viewing. You really only see Vertigo for what it really is on a second viewing. And this is something that a, a mainstream artist like Hitchcock can't really achieve anymore that kind of scale, you know, playing with the medium in that way within the studio system. And Vertigo is, you know, undeniably a masterpiece. And the more I watch it, the more I become convinced of that. But I think Psycho has become a more troubling movie the more I watch it and study it. It really seems to be a movie built around a murder in a shower. The buildup is tremendous. The most shocking murder in movie history is committed. And then there's kind of a cleanup. And then I feel now that Hitchcock shot his load, you know, had his orgasm filming that scene. Now it's time to wipe ourselves up as Anthony Perkins is doing. And now Hitchcock has got to deal with the rest of the movie. And a lot of it is pretty flat. Yes, there's the Martin Balsam murder and the climax in the cellar. But the second half is so perfunctory compared to the opening 45 minutes. And it also contains a few of the worst scenes Hitchcock has filmed, including the explanation scene at the end. I think it's a performance art piece in many ways. And in terms of the anxieties and obsessions coursing through it, it's one of the most fascinating fascinating movies that were ever made, but you cannot shake off the idea anymore that Psycho exists for the shower scene only. Storyboarded to death, seven days to shoot. Psycho introduced something into mainstream movie making, and that was murder as cinematic spectacle. And that idea has been replicated in horror movies ever since, the murder sequence. Do you feel that connection at all? Do you think that Psycho did introduce that into the culture? And is that... Is that good or bad? I mean, is, is there kind of an immorality to that in a way? You have built a scene that is a minute long of a person's murder. Now, that really hadn't been done before. People get shot. People were killed off screen. But you designed a sequence where your reaction to it is going to be the shock of the murder, but also kind of a delight in the murder. You are looking at Janet Lee through the murderer. Your hand is almost holding that knife as she's being stabbed. You're in a very uncomfortable position position as the viewer of that movie. And it did introduce into American film the spectacle of the murder. I mean, Pauline Kael, the critic, Pauline Kael, found Psycho to be on that level, a kind of, have a kind of immorality to it. And I guess the question really is, can a film be immoral? Is there anything that you've ever seen in a movie that you felt violated by, that you felt they just went too far? That's just too extreme. I mean, everyone has their own little threshold. Right. We had Alexander Aja, the horror director, was on here, and he was, as a kid, he said the movie that tipped it over for him was Raiders of the Lost Ark and the Melting Faces at the end. And you said that Friday the 13th, when you were a kid, that you were way too young. And then when Alexander was older, he said definitely Lars von Trier's Antichrist was something that just kind of tipped him over. Is there a movie like that for you that you remember going, okay, that went too far for me? Um, they're definitely it's, – it's not the answer to what you're asking. But definitely I think Friday the 13th had to do with – I think you can – if people are too young to see – there definitely is a age limit where – people have to be to see to be exposed to stuff like that and if they see it below that age limit it is not good and it is not it's it's there's nothing nothing about that is good but is there anything that i have seen it's gonna make me sound so <laughs> twisted to even have to think as long about it <laughs> okay. i guess i work and see so many I movies know. like there's nothing i mean the thing that comes to mind 
<laughs> the thing anyway in the last four or five years uh lee wanell wrote this movie called mule do you know that movie i don't I, I'm worried to have the wrong title. It's about the heroine. I, I know of the is movie. It called yeah, Mule? I think it is called Mule. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's, you know what the movie's about? I, I suppose it's drug mules. It's drug no? mules. But the guy comes, the guy, basically the first five minutes of the movie is these two guys go to wherever they go. And then they come into Australia and the Australian authorities bust them for being mules. And they stick one of them. One of them gets, well, I forget what happens to one of them. But the other one is put in a hotel room. And there's a law in Australia that you can keep someone in a hotel room for for seven and then it moves to ten days and make them make them take a shit mm-hmm. and there's someone staying not take basically the movie is about someone holding it in for ten straight days <laughs> <laughs> I don't know for whatever reason when you say what I don't know if it's gone too far now but it definitely was like wow that it's, it shocked me but I guess because it's what I do for a living it's hard to really be now I'm more disturbed I think about about documentaries about things that are real life atrocities than things that are fictional you enroll at Vassar in the mid to late 80s, and your roommate happened to be Noah Bombach, who went on to direct The Squid and the Whale, Margot at the Wedding, Greenberg, and Francis Ha, as well as this year's While We're Young. Your first produced movie in 1995 is Noah's debut, which is Kicking and Screaming, which is a pretty good movie. And getting that movie made pointed to the first sign of Jason Blum as the producer. The story is well known. Steve Martin is a family friend. Obviously, I, because he collects art, I would have to. Yeah, exactly. He was a collector. Yeah, He is a collector. I mean, he's, he and my dad are good friends. And you sent him the script. Not to be in it, but to see if he wanted to help with financing or something. And he really likes the script, and you ask him to write a note about how much he liked the script, and you place that note on the cover of the script you send out to financiers. So it's the first thing people read, this endorsement from Steve Martin before they even open the script. And Kicking and Screaming gets made, and it's a pretty assured debut. And what exactly did you do on that film? On the making of the movie? Yeah. Zero. I you weren't there at all? Nope. I never went to the set. No, no, so, no, no. I, I, was, I was pushed out. It was, a, it, was a, it was also a very formative experience. Great first experience. <laughs> I got the movie uh, financed and set up, and then I was pushed out by the, by the financier. So it was very, very – it was a very tough, tough first, experience for first me. First time but out. It was, but if your listeners are people who are – Starting out in the movie business, it was a it, it's 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 a fun way to say the story. Wow, your first movie was like a very critical success. But in the inside story of my first movie was that it was very hurtful. It bothers me to this day. Oh, I'm still troubled by I it. No and, idea. Uh, and uh, yeah, I was I was pushed out of the whole process. There's a guy who's no longer in the business named Joel Castleberg, who is no help. There were a lot of other people who I won't mention because some of them still are in the business. But it was a, it was a big, big, profound disappointment. Uh, well, we—I don't think we've had a guest on the show that hasn't had one. I've, well, so, we've had—you can't have success without disappointments. Right. If you're not having disappointments, you're not trying. But what were you doing? I'm trying to figure out what were you doing after Vassar and before you started. I think at Arrow, were you? You did a bunch of jobs. Were you a realtor at one point? Were you my, selling cable? My first job was—I uh, I graduated in 1991, and Noah and I moved to Chicago. We lived in Rogers Park, and we were renting a one-bedroom apartment. It was 500 bucks, 250 each. And he was in the living room, and I was in the bedroom. And we 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 were we were living in that apartment, and uh, I was I got a job. Another guy who went to school with him, Chris Reed, had this job selling cable TV, and I thought it seemed like it. I loved the notion of working on commission. 
I've always mm. loved that. And that's mm. what I do now. Yeah, I work on right. commission. I don't take a fee. I only make money if the movies make money. And I've loved that all my life. And I started loving that when I was 21 years old. And I took this job selling cable television. And I sold cable TV in Chicago for a year. It was a commission-only job. And after a year, it was 1992, and we were trying to raise money for Kicking and Screaming. It looked like it was a recession. It looked like most of the money was going to come to New York. So we moved to New York. So Noah moved back in with his mom, Georgia Brown, on Greenwich. They lived next to that place, Dayo. On, or they lived in a townhouse right next to that shop on Greenwich, and uh, and I moved to Waverly, and uh, th- then I moved to another commission job, which I also loved. I became a real estate agent, so I got my real estate license, which takes a couple weeks, and uh, I rent. I was in a par- I rented apartments to people, um, which I could do on my own time in New York, and uh, and and when I wasn't doing that. Noah and a guy named Jeremy Kramer, who's an executive at Fox now, and I had a company called Acropolis, which is the name of the diner at Vassar, and mm-hmm. uh, and we tried to raise money for Kicking and Screaming, and and did you know we worked on it for I don't know two more years in New York trying to trying to put the movie together, and while I was a real estate agent, but I, I was trying to raise money, I was putting my money into Kicking and Screaming development, and then I was also um, I had a theater company. The result of of the split of which I which I mentioned before of kicking and screaming, it caused kind of a schism in my social life. And I I found myself actually in New York with not a lot of friends. And uh, there was a woman I went to school with named Alexia Lando, and she was going out with a a playwright in New York named Jonathan Mark Sherman. And John Sherman was part of this company called Malapart. And Malapart was Ethan Hawke and Frank Whaley and Robert Sean Leonard and Callista Flockhart and Steve Zahn and James Waterston and more people I can't mention now. And and through Alexia and Jonathan, I met this spectacular group of people who were doing amazing things in New York. And I um, started actually producing the Malapart Theater Company. I wasn't making any money doing that, but I was producing Malapart. I was a real estate agent, and then eventually I I, uh, I took that job at Arrow Entertainment. Right. And then so at Arrow, you, uh, you worked as vice president of acquisitions? Yes. Yeah, so Arrow was... Uh, was uh, run by a, a, a great man who started a canon named Dennis Friedland, who I really learned the nuts and bolts of the movie business from before before Harvey. And um, Dennis, uh, one of the investors in Dennis's company, was the father of, uh, of someone I went to, uh, of, a, of uh, a woman I went to, Catherine Kellner is a woman I went to, college, a great, my ex-girlfriend and a woman I went to school with. And so Dennis had read Kicking and Screaming, and Dennis was going to finance Kicking and Screaming, and he went back and forth with us all summer long about financing Kicking and Screaming. So I'd do real estate, and then I'd go to Dennis's office, and Noah and I would pitch our hearts out. And after three months of this, in September, Dennis said – and I'd actually – was on my way to the UCLA Producers Program. Mm-hmm. I'd gotten into Peter Stark and the UCLA Producers Program, and I was going to go to the Producers Program. And, and right before I had to make the decision, Dennis said, look, I have a good news and bad news. He said, the bad news is I'm never going to finance kicking and screaming <laughs> he said but the good news is you seem like a great salesman i'd love to give you a job here and so i had to decide between going to the ucla producers program and taking the job with arrow and i and i took the job with arrow and that was i was vice president of acquisitions it was a very fancy title for a 24 year old well after arrow it's the miramax years where you are co-president of acquisitions and i would imagine this is a very cool job i mean so you're basically scouting films usually at festivals i'm assuming this took you everywhere from Cannes to venice to berlin to sundance i mean this is must have been an exhilarating ride a very heady time especially in independent film this is the heyday of miramax and i mean regardless of his reputation you know harvey weinstein is one of the smartest people i have ever met about movies and film history i mean he's up there 
with Tarantino and, and, and business and marketing. Yes, I mean he's, it. Just, he's, he's, a, he's a quadruple threat. An encyclopedic yeah. knowledge of all of yeah, those areas. But he has made many filmmakers unhappy. Sure. And you've said that the main part of your job was making sure that Harvey Weinstein and his brother Bob never heard the word no. I'm just wondering, what did that entail? And also, what was the period of your life like? I mean, was it as cool as it sounds or not? You can – please tell me. I, I, I don't know. Um, I, I've always – my whole life, I've um, – and I don't know why this is. My, 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 my therapist maybe could tell us. But I've always put myself in situations where um, I'm in over my head. So when I started at Arrow, I started in September, and in October, I went to Milan to MIFED, which is a film market that doesn't exist anymore, and I was there acquiring North American rights to movies. Now, I didn't know what that meant. I remember I literally went into the New Line office and asked them if the North American rights to The Mask were available for my company, Arrow Entertainment. I mean, it, that sounds like a joke, but it was true. So I was really in over my head. I was actually in tears in my hotel room, <laughs> so stressed out about what I was doing. The same thing happened at Miramax. So I was at Arrow for three years, and then um, Amy Israel, uh, who I had met going to all the festivals for Arrow, brought me into uh, to Miramax, and she was responsible for me getting the job there. She introduced me to Harvey, and we sat down at Cannes, and um, and uh, I told him a story about buying a movie for Arrow, and he said, "You're hired." And uh, and I was thrown into a job that was kind of everything you described. It was exhilarating. We, I was definitely way too young to realize what a big deal it was because I felt like I, I didn't realize what a big deal it was to be at Miramax until at 30 in 2000, I quit. I moved to L.A. I was the hottest thing in New York in movies, and then I was the bottom of the totem pole. I started, essentially started over at 30 years old. Another story. So I, I, my, I, I think I learned more in that three years than I've learned in any – 10 years span of my life and um, it was massively stressful but also really fun there was a time when I was sure I wasn't going to make it I remember I was about 18 months in and I I I, I sought out kind of a, a crisis career counselor person kind of like a psychiatrist although he specialized in this one thing and I remember very vividly sitting in his office saying I'm not going to make it and uh and um, and he this guy his name was Stephen Jacobson he was very very helpful um, and kind of got me thinking about it in a different way. What was the stress coming from? What was the main point of the, the main stress? stress was from myself like, like and 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 main stress was I, I put the pressure on myself but I'm very you know Harvey is just like you said he's he's what he's so unusual is he's brilliant on both sides you know I think he's brilliant creatively he's brilliant historically and he's brilliant um, in business and that's so so rare um, and I really wanted to please him like I wanted to please my parents you know and, right. and he's very very hard to please so that that makes for a very stressful job I'm not sure if many people know this but Jason Blum passed on the Blair Witch Project which in all fairness would have been tough to imagine without the marketing campaign that Artisan pulled together and the viral possibilities of the marketing campaign. What happened with that? More successful than Paranormal Activity too. I think it made 250 worldwide. We only made 200. <laughs> I keep wondering if Paranormal Activity kind of became your Rosetta Stone in it a way was. after it you was. lost the Blair Witch Project. It was. What was so you, you, see, you see the Blair Witch Project and I, and I actually don't blame you. you I, I don't know what you would see in that movie without what they did did with that film. I've seen that as just a rough piece of footage. I mean, I might have definitely passed as well. I mean, what were you thinking? So the Blair Witch Project, um, 
in the days of VHS and the heyday of independent cinema in the I'm sure this is still true. It's still true to a certain degree. But anyway, one of the things that you didn't say no to is Harvey would say, any movie that we might buy at Sundance, I want to see early. And the answer of, oh, the filmmaker doesn't want to show it early did not fly. So we found different ways to see as much as we could early. We didn't succeed on every movie, but we had a pretty good, pretty good ratio. And uh, Blair Witch, interestingly, there's a, a VHS copy of the movie got out. Somehow it got out. So actually, uh, it was sent to the acquisition executives at all the big companies at that time. So I'm not saying this to to make my mistake seem any less big because I don't want to pretend that it wasn't mm-hmm. a huge mistake because mm-hmm. it was. But I saw it in the past. And like you said, ev- everyone threw their VHS and, and, and saw it. And this is all ties into paranormal activity. So everyone saw it in past. And then the movie, the more extraordinary thing about the Blair Witch Project, though, I think, is that the movie played at Sundance and it was like the Division Three acquisition. The big hot title at Sundance the year of Blair Witch was Happy Texas, which I was involved in buying, which we paid $10.25 million so you for. you did pay up for $10 million because there's always been like a rumor that maybe it really wasn't as much as $10 million. So it really was a little bit over $10 million. It was. The comedy was I think the truth is out. Okay. The truth is out. Yes. Uh, $10 million for Happy uh, $10 million yeah, for yeah, Happy, Happy Texas. Texas. And again, it, it makes you... It, Again, as a listener, when when, when I, executives say they paid, no one. The only right. the, the, in the, in the best and worth, Miramax is a successful company because of Bob and Harvey, and they had a lot of help around them. But you know, it's why I didn't have authority to spend ten million dollars. So obviously, uh, it makes me sound much more important. But I, but I definitely advocated to do it. You know, I said you know this is I think this is a good thing to do. And I guess the the the, the greatest lesson out of that. Blair Witch Happy Texas moment is that the subsequent 12 months of the festival, obviously no one's ever heard of Happy Texas and Blair Witch turned into what it did. But we, even at a screening that was full of people, all the big companies passed again on Blair Witch. Everyone chased, we, there was a reason we paid that much money. Not Everyone was chasing a lot of other movies and no one was chasing Blair Witch. And everyone turned out to be wrong and artisan turned out to be right. And you, everyone says when people are starting in Hollywood, and there's the famous quote, you know, no one knows anything in Hollywood. Uh, but you can't act on that notion until you have, at least in my mind, until you have experienced it firsthand. So having lived through that when 13 people in very, very senior positions said paranormal activity is a joke, I had the confidence and courage to say, I admire everything that you've done and you're the biggest person in Hollywood, but I'm going to keep trekking on my little way, even though you've had 500 successes and I've had zero (laughs) because I had this, I watched a lot of people who know as much as you say that and were wrong about Blair Witch and I'm not doing that a second time. I won't let it happen again. And so that's how those two, those two events are related. Did Paranormal Activity come to you as a sample for to hire Oren Pelly for something else? Or was it just this $15,000 movie that he made that just happened to land in your lap when you were at Paramount? It came to Steven Schneider, who was, had, a, had a little production deal with me. He had a first look. We were on a lot of Paramount. I had a first look deal with Paramount. Steven had a first look deal with me. CAA sent it to Steven Schneider as a directing sample. And Steven saw the movie and said, you, we sh- you should check this out. And I watched it and um, called the agent. I'm not sure if it was Martin Spencer at that time, but I think it might have been Martin Spencer. Anyway, I called the agent, Brian Kavanaugh-Jones, and I said, um, told him the Blair Witch story, and I said, w- why not do this movie? And they said, well, the movie's already sold. It's going to, to DVD, sold for 150000 bucks." And I said, I think there's a huge 
I think this movie has huge potential. Please don't sell it to DVD, and the rest is a longer story. I don't know if you want me to get into it now. No, oh, it's fine. I mean, I think people pretty much people know, that, know story. that story. But yeah. you said that when you were at Paramount, where you had a producing deal, that you hadn't found the right creative niche. You said that you longed to be mainstream and that you pitched constantly and planned all the time and never got anything made. And you finally ended up making the kid-friendly comedy Tooth Fairy starring The Rock at another studio. And you thought, great. I finally get to make a studio film. But it wasn't what you thought it would be like. In fact, you were miserable, and you said big studio producing just wasn't going to be the right fit for me. What I really want to know, what was it that bothered you so much? I'm imagining in terms of how Blumhouse works, it must have been the development process at the studio. But you also said in a keynote address at South by Southwest that you hated everything about producing Tooth Fairy. Everything well, but... Well, that's not fair. I was making... I was, I, was, I, was, I was going a little... I was going off the handle. There are a lot of things I loved about it, but, but I didn't... It was not going to be my career, which I thought it was going to be. But go on. What were you going to say? No, no. I was just wondering what that everything else was. You liked the idea of how they marketed and promoted and put the film out you didn't like it you said i didn't like anything else about really i didn't feel fulfilled um because i thought i felt like i was i felt like mostly what i was doing was exercising someone else's ideas um who weren't wasn't the director it felt chaotic to me now looking back on that experience it was the first movie i'd ever done i think if i now produced a 65 million dollar movie for a studio i'd have a very different experience i don't think it would be as fulfilling as what our business is now, but I think it, you know, a lot of it was because I was once again in a position <laughs> way over my head. And, and, and I'm saying, I was saying that obviously, I was saying that for effect too. There was a lot of things. I loved Michael Lembeck, I liked Gordon and, uh, and Mark. There were a lot of, a lot of great things that, that came out of it. But fundamentally, um, I think, and the reason that I think that I keep doing low budget movies, even though now I'm in a place where I could produce more expensive movies is I think that the more money you spend on something that's creative, the more pressures get pushed on that object that are antithetical to being creative. I think being creative is about trying new things and failing and succeeding. And I think when you spend tons of money, the the, the idea of failure becomes so um, impossible when your job is on the line. If a movie fails, to me, that's um, that's a very tough way to be in a safe, creative space, and so I think I think not being flippant like like I was in that interview, but just being more thoughtful about it. I just feel like fundamentally, for me personally, those are pressures I don't I don't I just I just don't like I just don't like to have around what we're doing. Now, the exception to that, which I think is interesting, and why this is personal to me, is that. There are people in the, in all businesses, but in there are creative people in the movie business and the TV business who are really creative geniuses, um, Spielberg or Cameron or you know there there may be ten of those people, and to contradict everything that I just said, the notion of giving somebody like that unlimited resources to put their dream on a screen, I think, is amazing. I think that it makes me so excited about Hollywood. I think it's why Hollywood is can be so great. I am so far from a creative genius, and I would be. I'm not going to be. I'm not going to help uh, Jim Cameron make his movie. So it's those movies. I'm not going to. I'm not going to be involved with anytime soon. So so that's why it's. I'm saying it's not that the studio system is busted or this or that. It's just for me personally. I'm not lucky enough to have a brain like those people do, and so for my brain, low budget works.
The filmmaker of High Tension, Alexander Aja, was on the podcast, and we were talking about how violence and gore can be, in the right hands, extremely effective and powerful. And everyone from Godard, Hitchcock, Coppola, Scorsese, Spielberg, Peckinpah, Tarantino have explored this idea of how visceral blood is. Aja was one of the leaders of the French extremist movement, and gore and violence for them was the drama of the films. Not just a gross-out, but they were the point of them. And that was... Their main reason for existing in a way, challenging the cinematic French status quo of frothy comedies and earnest liberal polemics that seemed to swallow up the well-behaved French cinema in the 90s by violating them with unacceptable imagery. The violence was political in a way. And these movies weren't necessarily concerned with explaining themselves either. And my conversation with Aja led to explanations in horror films and how the explanation always screws everything up. The scares evaporate when they are explained because the scariest horror movies movies are random. There is no explanation as to why the events occurred. Logic isn't scary. Rules aren't scary. Backstory isn't scary. Explanations ruin horror. And The Babadook, for example, is for about 45 minutes the most frightening horror movie I'd seen in a long time, beautifully made and acted. And it's about a single mother in Australia raising her very disturbed six-year-old son. And it concerns a pop-up book that she doesn't remember buying her son. And the book has traumatized her son because there is an awful monster at the center of the book who begins to make appearances outside the house and then inside the house. The film initially plays with the idea that the Babadook is a real thing, but then it becomes a metaphor. And when it becomes apparent that the Babadook is a fancy metaphor for grief, I just wasn't as afraid anymore. The Babadook had been explained. What I thought was so scary about the movie at first was, what if the Babadook was real, a real entity, something that was just randomly drawn to the woman and her son, and that was actual? It's a horror movie, so why not? Anything goes. But the Babadook has a logic and psychologically patent metaphor at its center. And for all the skill of the movie, the moment the metaphor announced itself, something in me switched off because I realized this was going to be a much more contained film. It's a good movie. It's just not as scary because there is a reason and an explanation for what is happening. And the scariest movies, Aja and I agree, don't have that. I think the same thing is true in a different way for Adam Wingard's You're Next, which up until a point is a genuinely eerie and frightening horror movie until there's a reveal, a twist, that explains what is really happening. And it's no longer scary because it has now been explained to us. We can understand it. There's a reason for this, and we can process it. Not scary. What are your feelings about the horror film that feels it has to explain itself or offer a backstory? I mean, giving Leatherface and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre a backstory would diminish how frightening he is because he's then explained, and or not knowing what the intruders want in The Strangers until the final line makes that movie even more nightmarish and upsetting. I mean, how do you explain a nightmare? Do you kill the fear with an explanation? And what do you think works most effectively for a horror film? Well, I don't agree with you and Alex. Um, Good. I, I like think that. that the audience and me as an audience member and horror film lover, I want an explanation. I don't want an explanation. Now, and I think there are two different things, that two different points that you're making. I do not want to be preached to. I don't want a point. We talked about this a lot with The Purge. Like, I don't want a movie about gun control. I want a fun revenge movie. If there happens to be a message in there, terrific. But I don't want the message to take place of my 90 minutes of entertainment. And The Babadook, I would argue that it's less about explanation and more about trying to, trying to, trying to make a point, which I think is very – uh, th I think that's what ruins a horror movie. If you're trying to make a point, I love the Babadook, by mm -hmm. the way. But I think if you're trying to make a point, a social point, if you're trying to send a message in a horror movie, that's what you're. If you're aiming to do that, 
to me, that makes the movie not scary. There are a lot of horror movies that I love that have messages. The Purge is one, for instance, but that wasn't the primary goal of the filmmaker or of, of, of I. I think that horror movies, and, and, and one of the things I'm most proud of about the movie, the horror movies that we make, is that they, it is not anything goes. They do subscribe to the rules of a drama or an action movie, is that you have to have real characters and real situations and believable situations, and they have to be motivated. And I, to me, that makes the movies grounded and, and scarier. Not the other way around. You can't have random. You can't have ranch. For me, it makes the movies very niche. If you have just random, it follows terrific movie, not a massive commercial success because there's too many questions. And I think, and and I, it's not. I, I might have more mainstream taste in horror movies, but I think, um, I think you know one of the one of the exercises we do. Uh, at the company is when we're about to make a movie or about to decide on whether to make a movie or not is we say, let's, let's take out all the scares. Does that work as a Sundance movie? Does that work as a drama? You know what I mean? And the movie that you're describing would not. And we would be reluctant to make that movie. We, I really feel like, I really feel like the opposite of you guys. That the more, the the more, the more you understand what's going on, the scarier the movies are. I feel like random scares aren't as scary in movies. I think we were talking about, for example, like, uh, why did the killer attack the sorority girls in Black Christmas? Why did the shark appear around Amity? Why did Reagan get possessed by the devil? None of those are explained. I think we were more or less talking about that kind of thing and that we had to kind of like just deal with it ourselves. There wasn't kind of the safety of the explanation. Well, there's two different things you're talking about. The bagul in Sinister or the demon in the first paranormal activity or the Further, um, in in Insidious, yeah. Though the, once you start, well, that's you know that's studio horror filmmaking where you have a monologue where someone explains those things. That doesn't work, and I agree with you about that. But why every single person's real? Every single everyone has to be. I guess we're we're we're, we're conflating two issues, yeah, yeah. which is the 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 origin of the scary, which I agree with you has to should be vague, mm-hmm. but the scary's effect on everything else has to be super logical, and everyone's motivation has to be very logical, and the the motivation of the scare. Even if, like, we always talked about this in all the uh, – Kiva Goldsman, who has really pushed us on this point, and, um, you know, he's a pretty good writer <laughs> and director and producer, and he really drilled into our heads on Paranormal Activity 2, 3, and 4 – 2 and 3 he was involved in, whatever, all the sequels of Paranormal Activity. He said, I want to know who the demon is. I want to know what the demon does. I want to know every single thing about the demon. What is – why is he – now, none of that needs to wind up in the movie, but you as writer, filmmaker people – Everyone has to know so that the evil is very logical. But um, but how much you include the audience in the backstory of the evil and not is is I, I agree with you guys more. The film critic Paul and Kale, who loved pop spectacle and violence in movies more than any other serious critic, began to grow uneasy first by how serious Star Wars was taken, and then when Raiders of the Lost Ark blew up in 1981. And there was a problem with these films for her, and what she saw as something that was going to be ruining American movies as an art form for adults. She had a forbidding prediction. She took George Lucas and Steven Spielberg to task for not getting over the junk and crap of their boyhoods, their childhoods, and she envisioned a future where comic book movies were going to be made for adolescent boys about adolescent boys or men who act like adolescent boys made by men and these movies would dominate the studios effectively crushing the mid-level adult drama this was the fear james gray had at a certain point as a filmmaker and then he said it happened 
Alejandro Inaratu, while doing press last fall promoting Birdman, the movie that he wrote and produced and directed, and that he won three Oscars for, said in an interview, and I'm quoting, I think there's nothing wrong with being fixated on superheroes when you are seven years old, but I think there is a disease in not growing up. The enormous sums of money to be made on superhero movies are drying up streams of financing, as well as the prospect for distribution of lower-budget non-action films. They have ultimately been a poison, a cultural genocide, because the audience is so overexposed to plot and explosions and essentially shit that doesn't mean anything about the experience of being human. It's a false and misleading conception, the superhero. Then the way violence is applied, it's absolutely right-wing. If you observe the mentality of most of those films, it's really about people who are rich, who have power, who will do the good, who will kill the bad. Philosophically, I just don't like them. So, I think there's nothing wrong with being fixated on superheroes when you are seven years old, but I think there's a disease in not growing up. That's a very provocative line, and it hit a nerve with a lot of people, including Robert Downey Jr., who lashed out and responded, I respect the heck out of Inaratu, and I think for a man whose native tongue is Spanish, to be able to put together a phrase like cultural genocide speaks to how bright he is. I mean, I think what this really ties into, Jason, is how do we get to this culture of infantilization? What is the theory? I mean, is it a generation of scared Gen Xers overcompensating and protecting and raising a very anxious and scared generation, keeping them children away. These children who totally need approval, like, like, like me, and also need to relate to things, to identify with things. You know, this awful idea of relatability that is infecting the culture, that if I don't relate to something, then it can't be good, and I reject it. I need to identify with something, or else it's not good, which is really just kind of this all-consuming narcissism. I need to be warned in advance when reading Shakespeare or Toni Morrison or Mark Twain, if I'm going to have to read about violence or racism or sexual abuse, and I come to those passages unwarned, then they're going to trigger something in me, and I will need to go to my safe space. I mean, triggering this thing that college kids who demand that in curriculum they will be warned in advance that the work has murder, child abuse, suicide, animal mistreatment, sexual content – And they can either decide based on these warnings not to read Macbeth or Huckleberry Finn or Anna Karenina or The Great Gatsby or to, you know, hesitantly move forward. What do you think about this whole idea that we do live in this increasingly in in a culture that is so addicted to the inner child where you do have tens of thousands of adults going to Comic-Con and where Avengers Age of Ultron is the highest grossing movie of the year? Do you think there's something right about what Inaratu said? Do you feel that yourself as someone who partakes in the culture? I feel like there's zero uh, right with what he said. I just, it feels, it's just so, that's why, I feel like that's why, that's why like Democrats get a bad name, you know? <laughs> it's just, it's, there's room, that, first of all, and I also, it was James Gray, like the fact that to say the independent movie is dead now is so, just, it's, it, it deeply upsets me. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, whiplash aside, some of the best work certainly I've ever seen. I mean, is the independent movie less relevant than it was because uh, people have better TV sets and and have more access to content on TV and people, and is TV making movies less relevant? Yeah, maybe. And and until we sort out windows, movies are going to be less and less relevant. But who cares? First of all, between between whether people are acting in, you know, in TV or movies, to me, you're seeing 
filmed stories. And I think film stories are as good as they've ever been, you know, and to make a distinction between um, because the film stories on the mo- in movies aren't, aren't as good as TV or TV isn't good as movies to me, it, that's going to go back and forth and back and mm-hmm. forth. People right now are liking serialized stories and then they'll like, you know, 90 minute stories again. People loved super bloody horror movies until, until 2005 and now people like Supernatural and we're coming to an end of that and there are things and, and things go in waves. But to say, to get people excited about going to the movies, I guarantee you there are people who saw Avengers who saw, a, 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 saw movies that they wouldn't have ordinarily seen because going to Avengers got them excited about going to the movies. I think short of yeah, – I think you're talking about pornography. That's a whole other thing or, or you know, X-rated stuff or movies that advocate, you know, doing terrible things. But I think you're talking about R, PG-13, you know, the, the kind of movies that Hollywood and they're made all over the world. People are going to the movies. That's a, that's a good thing for storytellers. And I think to say that, that – that, I don't know. That just drives me bananas. Then the thing about social media and that, that drives me nuts when I watch movies. Like either movies are so self-conscious now, especially how, especially comedies. Like they're, they're always throwing you out of the out of the movie. I find it very hard to watch. I think that's a product of age. I'm 46 years old. Those movies are not made for me. And I think when you're 20, that's how you relate to each other, and that's what you like. I remember being 20 and people dumping on uh, Gen X, um, and and I was thinking like, well, that's how we do stuff, you know. And I feel like you got to give the next generation a chance, and that's how they they consume stories in a different way on their phones and. And you know what? There's there, you can't stop that. So no. you got to embrace it. Robert Downey Jr. also made some very provocative comments lately about the state of low-budget independent film when he was asked, do you have a craving after you've just finished wrapping another $280 million sequel to just make a $500,000 independent movie? And Downey answered with a resounding no. He went on to say, I don't want to do them because they're exhausting and sometimes they suck. And then you just go, what was I thinking? And though Downey goes on to say, I'm interested in making all types of movies, he adds that sometimes the little movies are the ones that wind up taking the most out of you because they're like, hey, man, we're just running a couple of days behind. Do you think you can stay through your birthday and then come back on the 4th of July? And by the way, can you um, like pay for craft services for the crew? And by the way, man, when we go to Sundance, it's like, uh, can we just sit you in a chair and you can sell this for six days in a row so that we'll make 180 bucks when it opens in one theater? God, isn't it so powerful what we're doing? What did you think of the movie, man? You saw it last night. I thought it was mediocre. Yeah, man, isn't it the greatest? Man, everyone's an artist here at Sundance. And Downey's final observation is, no, it's not the greatest. And not everyone's an artist here. Actually, most of you are kind of inexperienced and lame. And that is why I'm not making independent films. You know, it's both reductive and also on point. And it's kind of refreshing to hear someone call out this notion that just because it's independent means it's good. This is kind of a huge sentimental narrative that Sundance has been selling for a long time, that we should be rooting for banal, aspirational, independent movies just because it's at Sundance, just because you made it for no money. You know, as someone who sees a lot of independent movies, as I'm sure you do, most of them are not good, but most movies aren't good. Sometimes independent movies get overpraised because they are simply that at times, an independent movie. But the way they are extolled at something like Sundance or South by Southwest is what the New Yorker critic Richard Brody calls, quote-unquote, the self-congratulatory good feelings of the overtly liberal cinema. He goes on to write, the special mediocrity of independent films is the lack of direction and of production alike, the sense that there's neither an infrastructure surrounding the set, nor a stimulus on the set, but rather a fake stage on which the actors give boundlessly of themselves without there being any true
true apparent creative control. Now, I often would rather sit through a mediocre studio movie than a mediocre independent movie lately because at least I'm looking at something when I'm watching a studio movie. Money's been spent. There's actually a movie star to look at. There's something colorful and flashing going on. What are your thoughts on this whole thing? I disagree with that too, and I uh, and I also think Robert Downey um, said I, I don't believe his word. I'm sure those are his words. Yeah, it's on it's I, it's on YouTube. I know, I know, I know, yeah. I know. But I don't think that he. If you got him, if you got him, is he hasn't been here in here yet? No. If he comes in here, I don't think he would say that. I think that's in the middle of in the middle of Marvel madness. I think um, the, the the quality of independent movies is that is a personal taste aside. I think Sundance has to be celebrated and supported and yes. independent movies have to be celebrated and supported for a very simple reason. I think it is, um, I want to get the word right. I don't, I don't know. Obligation isn't the right word, but I think I, maybe it is an obligation. And I think, and I think Robert Downey at a, at a, at a, at a calmer moment would say that is that when you, and that's what I feel like we are doing. That's why we do this. Why Sarah with normal heart whiplash, the jinx. I think when you, get to the level in, that he's gotten um, multiple times in his career, that you have a certain obligation is the wrong word, but I would hope that people who are do that feel like, now that I've done that, I'm going to use my clout to get a not commercial story told. And yeah, most independent movies are crap, but there are a lot of independent movies that are spectacular, just like studio movies. And I think it's very important for people in the arts who are making movies and TV shows to every so often successful ones who have the opportunity to do this to say you know what the next movie I'm going to do I'm going to do because I want to get a great story out there in the world and I don't care how much money I make and I learned this from Ethan Hawke who's who as you know is my really good friend and he and he every day he thinks about this he thinks about and he's got four kids and a family to support and a lot of expenses and he he makes many 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 decisions by thinking, I'm going to put a great something out in the world, not how much am I going to get to put that great something out in the, out, out in the world. And I think it's, it's – it's, and everyone has a different balance and I'm not suggesting what the balance should be. Maybe it's one in ten times you do that. Ethan is on the other side. Ethan probably puts – it's probably eight in ten, eight non-commercial versus two commercial. But even if, even if Robert Downey does eight more Marvel movies and one more thing that's not – um, I think it's really important for people who've reached a certain level in the business to take a step back and say, what, what great creative thing besides going to the Hilton and giving $10,000 to a charity, take that to your sentiment of giving back to the world in your career and say, what cool, we did a documentary on autism, same idea. I'm not making any money from uh, How to Dance in Ohio, which was a documentary that, that we had in, uh, in Sundance, but it's a great documentary. And I don't have any connection to autism, but I thought the story was super moving. And I want people to see that documentary. And I think that it's important for people like Robert Downey, whether it's on a producing or a directing or an acting side, to, to, a, to make decisions to do things that aren't for money. And the reason why I don't really believe, and I, this my quotes here better not be taken out of context <laughs> but the reason I don't really believe that he really means what he's saying and he's being more flippant is Robert Downey's done a lot of things in his career that haven't been about a big paycheck or big 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 not for a long time been is that not true producing or uh, I don't think so he spent a lot of time doing well you would know well, better than I did but he spent a lot of time doing a lot of cool independent movies right yes, and I bet you if I had to bet there are many more in his future 
There was a bit of a takedown on you in The Hollywood Reporter last year. And to give the listener a flavor of this, the writer raised a few questions. Blum has become as polarizing as he is prosperous. Critics question the quantity and quality of his many films and production, as well as the working conditions and rewards or lack thereof for talent. Far less notice than the hits from Blum or Blumhouse Productions is a sizable batch of finished movies that have not been released even on demand, some featuring big-name talent who worked for rock-bottom rates in the hopes of being part of one of Blum's hits. There's also disappointment from some who have worked on them for below market prices. Many were well aware of Blum's success, but also knew that he ran no-frills productions. What they found, at least in some cases, were work conditions worse than what they had anticipated, and when the films went unreleased, no worthwhile credit. Now, this piece goes on to detail the complaints of a few anonymous, disgruntled crew members who worked on a few of the movies, and the article goes into detail about all the movies that haven't been released. And it all seems to me like kind of the usual stuff. Nothing too outrageous, the usual bitching and moaning in this industry. You know, nothing in it seemed that bad. But there was a kind of short-lived glee around town when the piece appeared, and people talked about it. I had a few people send it to me, wondering what I thought. And the question is not about the particulars of the piece, but why the piece appeared in the first place. And what do you think motivated The Hollywood Reporter to run that piece? And I guess what I'm ultimately asking you, and and you kind of touched upon it in your last answer, how do you deal with criticism? And are you zen? Are you emotional? Or is this all just part of the business for you? Um, I'm definitely not zen. I'm super emotional about it. I, that piece compl- totally hurt my feelings um, and um, and made me, you know, really upset. Um, and uh, as I'm still, I was, st- I'm still upset about it. I, and, I, and I'm not going to pr- pretend I'm not. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the pillars of our business is that, and 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 one of the reasons why I was very upset about it is that part of my pitch to directors is you can make a studio movie, you can make an independent movie, you can make a pilot, or you can make a Blumhouse movie. And the one thing I will say a Blumhouse movie as opposed to a pilot is I guarantee you the movie will come out, which is true. We don't guarantee a wide release, but we guarantee the movie will come out. And every movie, not to sound defensive, but every movie that that was mentioned in that article is now available on iTunes or whatever. So, so that, 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 that it, when you're, when you're, and, and have we had crew member, we, do we, do we do tier one rates? Yes. Are there crew are, of the thousand people in LA that we've employed? Are there people who are unhappy? Absolutely. And, um, and I think, uh, now there's been a little time that, that piece has come out, but I think, um, I think, uh, you know, when people, we've gotten more successful when people get more successful, they get, you know, the, the, the everyone, feels good when negative things come out about them that's the that's the world that we live in for better for worse i've been a part of it on the other side too so i don't want to pretend i'm holier than thou i can, I, I have i have schadenfreude like everybody else but that's why i think i think there was i think i think when you when when you get a when you get a great story in the new york times <laughs> hang on tight because a bad one's coming no matter what you do and no matter uh, the accuracy of it 